please turn with me this morning uh, to Acts chapter 16, and you'll be glad to know that I checked about 10 times to make sure that I had my notes, because last week was very uncomfortable for me, and probably for you too. All right, so Acts chapter 16, Uh, we're going to be continuing on. Um, uh, Luke records the ministry of Paul and Silas uh, in Philippi in uh, verses 11 through 40 of this chapter. Uh, We've already considered verses 11 through 15, which tell us of the conversion of Lydia. Um, She, it appears, was the first person under the ministry of the Apostle Paul to be converted in the continent of Europe. Now, this is not to say that there were not believers in Europe before this, because remember back in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, it says that there were people from all over the Roman Empire who were present, Jews as well as proselytes, in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, including, it says, visitors from Rome. And we assume that some of these visitors from Rome are included in the number of those who came to believe, which the text tells us amounted to 3,000 people. So surely some of them were from Rome. They came to believe in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They took the faith back to Rome with them when they went and undoubtedly shared the gospel with uh, family members, friends, those in the synagogues in which they worshipped. And some of them, too, presumably came to faith in Christ. But this is the first account that we have of a conversion of somebody who was in the continent of Europe. And so we might say that in a formal sense, this is the first preaching of the gospel, um, at least under apostolic oversight, um, in the continent of Europe. Well, today, with God's help, we're going to take a look at verses 16 through 40. Luke says, As we were going to the place of prayer, uh, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and who brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, 
Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into, the, into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent, sent the police, saying, let those, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Saul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Uh, well, as we look at this passage, we can break it down into three uh, different but related episodes. Uh, first, we have the slave girl who was delivered from demon possession in verses 16 through 18. Second, we have Paul and Silas being delivered from prison in verses 19 through 26. And then third, we have the conversion of the Philippian jailer, bringing him deliverance from his pagan belief system, his idolatry and sin and darkness. And you'll notice that each episode has to do with deliverance of one kind or another. Uh, someone who is bound in some way is set free by the power of God. David said, God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. And we see this wonderfully illustrated in this series of events as Paul and Silas are ministering in Philippi. In Psalm 107, David said, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord, that is, those whom he has delivered, let them say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons. Kind of sounds like Paul and Silas, does it not? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. Our God is a God of deliverance, a God of rescue, a God of salvation. And this is largely what Jesus came into the world to do, is it not? To rescue us, to save us, to bring us deliverance from everything that binds us. Isaiah captures this mission of the Messiah when he says in Isaiah chapter 61, and you might recall that this was a passage quoted by our Lord when he begins his ministry, when he's in the synagogue at Nazareth, and the leader of the synagogue hands him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and has him read the daily reading, which was Isaiah 61, and starts like this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is a prophetic description of the Messiah, and it's largely metaphorical, uh, a spiritual and a moral bondage, which is, is, uh, bring, is brought about by the Messiah and his work. But there are many instances in which it also proves to be uh, quite literal as well, certainly in the case of Paul and Silas. Um, our Lord is in the business of breaking bonds, of setting captives free, 
And isn't this what we find him doing during his earthly ministry when he's casting out demons and he's healing the sick? He is setting free those who have been bound by the works of the devil. For instance, we read in Luke chapter 13, now he was teaching, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are loosed. Uh, The English translation normally says you are freed, but it's the same word, loose. You are freed or loosed from your disability. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. And then we find that the ruler of the synagogue is indignant because Jesus performed this work on the Sabbath day, which is a day of rest. And he says, there are six days in which men ought to do work and labor. Um, Come on one of those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You're willing to loose an ox or a donkey to provide it water, and you're unwilling for this woman to be loosed from the bondage of Satan on the Sabbath day? Rightly did he call them hypocrites. So Jesus delivered her. He rescued her. He freed her from bondage. But it's not only in terms of his work of casting out demons and his work of healing, but also in his teaching ministry that Jesus sets people free. Jesus said on one occasion, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The greatest bondage that anybody can uh, be uh, enslaved to is the bondage of error, of falsehood, of deception. And what we need more than anything is to be just to have an understanding of the truth that God and God alone is God, that he is the creator and the sustainer of all things, that he is sovereign, that he is holy, that he is righteous, that we by comparison are terribly sinful and we need redemption through Jesus Christ. We need a knowledge of the truth. Satan enslaves us and captures us and holds us in bondage through lies and falsehood. And so the greatest deliverance of all is being set free from error and falsehood. You shall, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus has come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He has come into the world to set free those who are held in any form of bondage. Well, this passage begins by telling us that on one occasion, as Paul and Silas were going to the place of prayer, and presumably it was the same place mentioned earlier in connection with Lydia, a place out by the riverside, says, as they were going to the place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl who Luke describes as having a spirit of divination, a spirit of divination. The Greek says having a pythonic spirit, pneuma puthona in Greek. And this is a reference to a person believed to be inspired by the Greek god Apollo, uh, who was associated with the giving of oracles or divine messages to those who would come to inquire of him concerning their fortune or their fate. If they're going to undertake a great endeavor, they would often first inquire of the god Apollo and get some guidance from him as to whether or not the mission is going to be successful. Um, And there was a very famous shrine 
um, at the city of Delphi in Greece. It was called the Oracle of Delphi, in which uh, preeminently above all of the places where Apollo might be worshipped and where there might be a priestess or a prophetess who would speak in his name, the Oracle of Delphi was the center and was considered the greatest of all of the Apollo uh, oracles. Um, and it figures very prominently in ancient Greek history and mythology. Uh, people from all over the world would come to consult the deity at the oracle. It, ha- it had a reputation for having never been wrong. Yeah, there are a couple of famous instances that you might be uh, familiar with. Um, you may have heard of them before. In Sophocles' play, Oedipus Rex, Laius and Jocasta, the king and queen of Thebes, inquire of Apollo at Delphi about the fortune of their newborn son. The priestess tells them that the boy is destined, get this, to kill his father and marry his mother. Well, the parents are obviously horrified by this, and Laius orders his wife, Jocasta, to have the baby killed. She's unable to bring herself to do it, and so she hands the baby over to a servant to do it, and he's unable to do it, so he takes the baby out to a mountaintop and leaves the baby exposed to the elements. This was actually a very common way to deal with unwanted children. Uh, Today, we tend to do it before the child is born. In that day, it was after the child was born, uh, just to leave or abandon the baby, or as they would say, to expose the child. Well, as it would happen, a shepherd comes upon this baby, and he takes pity upon the baby, and he knows that uh, the king and queen of Corinth are childless, and so he takes the baby uh, to the king and queen of Corinth, Polybus and Merope. When Oedipus grows up, he inquires of the oracle at Delphi, and he's told that he's destined to kill his father and marry his mother. He's horrified by this. He gets the same answer that his parents had gotten, and he's horrified by this, but he doesn't know he's adopted. He thinks it means his adoptive parents, who he thinks are his real parents. And so in horror, he flees the city of Corinth, and he intends to go to Thebes, which unbeknownst to him is actually his hometown. On the way, as he's going, he gets into a scuffle with a man and ends up killing him. Unbeknownst to him, it's his father. He finally arrives at Thebes where he learns that the queen has recently uh, become a widow. He woos her, and they end up being married. He ends up doing exactly what the oracle said. He kills his father and marries his mother. But notice that everybody in that whole story is trying to avoid that fate that has been pronounced. The story is about the power of fate and how it's unavoidable. As Christians, we don't believe that, of course. God is in control of all things, not some impersonal force called fate. But the point is the oracle at Delphi figures very prominently in the story, and the oracle is never wrong. So people come to the oracle... Um, and they try to seek their fortune, try to get an understanding of what fate has in store for them. Uh, Herodotus tells the story of a a fabulously wealthy king by the name of Croesus. He's the king of Lydia, uh, which is in uh, eastern, or rather western Turkey today. And he contemplated going to war against the Persians. But before he undertook this task, he sent a message to the the oracle at, at Delphi to inquire of the god Apollo, And the answer, or the question was, shall I go to war against Persia? And the oracle said, if Croesus goes to war against Persia, he will destroy a mighty kingdom. Taking this as a favorable reply, he goes to war against Persia, and the kingdom he destroys is his own. 
because he is brutally conquered and captured. So again, this is the background for uh, what we're reading here in Acts chapter 16, because this slave girl is said to have um, the spirit of Pi- or a Pythonic spirit, and that Python has to do with Apollo. Uh, Python was the symbol of Apollo. She is in Philippi, kind of the local expression of the oracle of Apollo. What she says about the future concerning an individual's fate is believed to be the case. And so uh, we um, find that, that Paul is encountering really one of, the, one of the strongest of the ancient Greek myths and the power of one of the strongest of the Greek gods. Now, the messages, uh, by the way, of the oracle uh, were often ambiguous, just like to Croesus. If you go to war, you're going to destroy a mighty kingdom. Normally, this was done so that whatever the outcome actually was, the oracle could be interpreted as being correct. <laughs> just enough ambiguity, kind of like a modern-day horoscope, right, or a tarot card reader, or somebody who goes to a fortune teller, which, by the way, all of these things are prohibited in the strongest possible terms to God's people. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Um, I trust that none of us here uh, do any of these things or take these things seriously. Now, the priestess who served at the, as the mouthpiece of the oracle spoke in a trance-like state, which it was claimed was the result of being inspired by Apollo. And since Apollo, as I said, was symbolized by a python, uh, those priestesses or prophets who spoke in his name were them, themselves therefore called pythons or were said to be speaking by the Numa Puthona, the, the spirit of Python. And that's the language, precisely the language that's used here about this slave girl when it says that she had a spirit of divination. People would come to inquire of Apollo through her and have their fortunes told. And notice that uh, she was a slave. And all the prophets for her prophesying didn't go to her, but to her masters. And so she really, she's in a, in a twofold bondage, isn't she? She's a slave of men, and she's also a slave of this demonic spirit. Now, modern scholars tend to assume that the trance-like state of the priestesses of Apollo were induced by drugs. And there's no doubt that drugs may very well have been involved, maybe psychotic herbs in the incense There's good reason to believe this to be the case, but the context here suggests that there's something far more going on than just the natural phenomenon of a drug-induced psychotic state. The context is very clear that there's a real demonic spirit that is at work, real demon possession. And there's no reason to deny this unless one is operating under the prejudice of an anti-supernatural bias, which a lot of modern scholars do. Uh, But the text is quite clear and explicit. It says she had a spirit of divination. And that Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out. And it, the spirit, came out. There was a real spirit involved. Demons are real, as are angels. Demons, in fact, are fallen angels. And they seek to wreak havoc in the world of men, leading people astray, tempting them to sin, deceiving them, enslaving them to various Uh, lusts and addictions and other harmful and self-destructive practices. And sometimes their hold is so strong over a person 
The scripture describes it as being possessed, being possessed by a demon. Demonic possession, at least in its more overt manifestation, seems to be more common in primitive places of the world. And I think this is largely because modern sophisticates in the West tend to poo-poo the whole idea of a spirit world. And that perhaps is the greatest deception of all. Maybe we are more under the influence um, in, in the West it, by our disbelief in the spirit world uh, than those in primitive tribes who actually understand that such things are real. Well, this slave girl, it says, followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God and proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, this is very interesting. Why would a demon essentially testify on behalf of Paul and Silas? Well, perhaps it was something in the girl's manner. Uh, maybe she said what she said mockingly, derisively. I mean, we really don't know. Uh, but sometimes to mimic the truth in a divisive or derisive way is the most persuasive way of telling a lie, or at least the most persuasive way to prevent people from taking the truth seriously. And so maybe she, the way her, her manner in saying this maybe made it appear that she's mocking them and they deserve to be mocked for the claims that they are making, that they are prophets or, or um, men who are teaching the way of the Most High God and the way of salvation. And so it actually had the effect of turning people away from Paul and Silas. In any event, Paul eventually has enough of it and he commands the spirit to depart from her. Now, why did he wait so long? It says she kept doing this for many days before he cast the spirit out. Again, we don't know. We can't say, but I would suggest that perhaps it was in order to allow this thing to become more widely known. The longer this happened, the more and more people heard about it, were aware of it, maybe personally had heard this going on. These men are servants of the Most High God, and they show you the way of salvation. The more widely this was known, then when her deliverance came, the more widely known was the power of Christ and his grace to this young slave girl. So maybe in the end, it actually brought greater glory to Jesus for it. At any rate, no sooner had Paul spoken than the spirit came out. And Luke, it's interesting, makes a pun here. It's not evident in the English translations, but it's definitely there in the Greek. He uses the same word in the next sentence. First, it says that the spirit came out, and then it says her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Literally, in the Greek, it's this. The spirit came out, and her owners saw that their hope of gain came out. All right? Their hope of gain, their, their means of profit came out when the spirit came out. And it seems that Luke is, is making a pun on this. Uh, they were benefiting um, from the exploitation of this slave girl. Not only do they own her body and soul according to Roman law, but they gain all the benefits of her demon possession if there are such benefits to be had. Certainly not to her, uh, but to her owners. Now, when their means of making money was gone, they turned and raged against Paul and Silas, and they dragged them before the city authorities and said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, you might remember last week we mentioned that Philippi was a Roman colony, and as a city, it closely followed the municipal policy of the city of Rome, so that what Rome did when word reached Philippi, Philippi tended um, tended to do the same. And you recall that just before this, Rome 
Uh, the city had expelled all of its Jews because of a disturbance that the Jews created there. The Roman historian Suetonius talks about this as he uh, gives a biography of the emperor Claudius. And it would seem that the same thing happened in Philippi because when Paul and Silas come there, he finds a group of Jewish women but no Jewish men. Where, where are all the men? Scholars believe it's because they have been expelled. They're in hiding. They're not meeting. Maybe they've literally taken flight from the city. And they didn't care so much about the Jewish women. They're not the troublemakers. It's those Jewish men. Um, and, but the point is that what they're saying here about Paul and Silas would seem to be building upon this idea. Look, these are Jews, and they're causing a disturbance, almost the exact language that Suetonius uses uh, to describe what takes place in the reign of Claudius and what led to their, uh, the Jews being expelled from Rome. So they're Jews, and they're causing trouble. And as Jews, they shouldn't even been, be here. And the crowd joined in in denouncing them. And the magistrates gave the order for them to be beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Now, in his writings, Paul would refer to the various forms of persecution and distress that he suffered for the cause of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 6, for instance, he's, he says he endured afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, now, these last three things all seem to be involved here. The crowds are clamoring for Paul and Silas to be dealt with harshly. And they're it's like a riot. They're imprisoned. They're beaten. In another place, he says, among other things, three times was I beaten with rods. Well, this is one of those times. There are other references to him being beaten. It doesn't specifically mention rods, but this is one that, that does. So, after having them beaten, the magistrates throw them in prison and fasten their feet in stocks. And things are looking pretty grim for Paul and Silas. And so they begin to sing, gloom, despair, and agony on me. The, they, they wrote the original lyrics of that hee-haw song. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Remember that song? Gloom, despair, and agony. No, that's not what they sing, is it? If I could sing, I'd actually try to sing that. But then you start throwing things at me. Now, we would think you've just been beaten. Your, your back is full of welts and bruises, maybe lacerations. You're in pain. You're sitting in a cold, dark dungeon below ground, feet in stocks. It's midnight, it's the deep, deepest, darkest hour of the night, and you're in pain, suffering shame, and you would think despair and gloom, but that's not the attitude of Paul and Silas, is it? It says that they lifted up their voices in prayer and praise to God, singing hymns. They, they prayed and sang hymns of praise to God, and they weren't quiet about it either. It wasn't something that they did under their breath so that only the two of them could hear each other. Their prayer didn't consist of a, a moment of silence, right? They lifted up their voices in prayer and praise to God. And it says the prisoners were listening to them. It doesn't say merely that the prisoners heard them, but that they were listening to them. It was loud enough and it was sustained enough that it captured their attention and they were paying heed. They were listening to the things that Paul and Silas were saying. In their deepest, darkest hour yet, they were anything but despairing. They didn't say gloom and, and doom and despair and woe is me, but they were praising God. I think they took what Jesus said to heart in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they were not um, woe is me type of guys. They were worshiping the Lord in the midst of their trouble. And as they prayed and sang, God caused the earth to tremble, caused it to shake. In fact, he shook the very foundations of the prison, knocking the prison doors off their hinges and loosening the prisoners' chains from the walls. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he supposed that they had escaped and he prepared to kill himself because it was Roman law that if someone was in charge of a prisoner and a prisoner escaped, whatever sentence was passed on that prisoner was to be inflicted upon the guard who let the escape happen. And he figured it was better to take his own life than to suffer whatever fate some of those prisoners were about to experience. And so he's ready to do himself in, thinking that this is the better option. But yet Paul, when he realizes what he's trying to do, says, no, wait, don't do it. We're all here, which that itself was a miracle. Because it's not only Paul and Silas whose chains are uh, broken, uh, who have the means of escape, but apparently the, the others do as well. And he says, don't do it, we're still here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a great question. What must I do to be saved? But, but he was a pagan, and so how did he even know to ask the question? Well, Paul and Silas probably had already witnessed to him. When they're first put in prison, they probably shared the gospel with him. Probably was a very brief thing, but he shared the gospel. And he undoubtedly was aware of what had transpired over many days, that this Pythonic spirit, this slave girl, was testifying that these are servants of the Most High God, come to show the way of salvation. And here, there's this great earthquake that takes place. They're freed from their bonds. He's probably reading into this that God is acting somehow to free his servants and perhaps as they were praying and lifting up their voices to God, they're praying for their persecutors, asking that God may lead them to repentance, that they may be saved from the wrath of God. And he puts all of this together and he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And that is a great question for anybody to ask. And so it says their answer was, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night. What hour was it? Midnight. And uh, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. I think how beautiful this is. You don't come to be a jailer in the ancient world without either being or becoming a very hard man. I mean, you had to deal with the lowest lives of ancient society. You had to be a pretty brutal man to be occupied in this position. But here, once all of this transpires, he deals so tenderly, so softly with Paul and Silas. He gets water. He washes the backs of these two men, washes their wounds, and then in turn... Paul and Silas wash him and all his family with the waters of baptism as they administer the rite of baptism to them. 
after they had come to believe. So first, the slave girl was freed from her bondage to the devil. Then the Lord set Paul and Silas free from prison. And now the Lord delivered the jailer and his family from their bondage to sin and false religion. The jailer and his family were not Jews. There's no evidence of that, nor even God-fearing Gentiles, but idolaters steeped in the mythology and false religion of the Greco-Roman world with its many false gods and its evil practices. So we have a story of deliverance from, uh, one, uh, from one episode to the next. And I thought it was very providential. I don't, Melinda and I don't confer about the picking out of the worship choruses. She picks them out weeks ahead. And I noticed today as we're singing how many of the songs have this theme of being rescued, of being delivered, of being set free. And I thought, how appropriate for today's message. Because this really is the theme of chapter 16 here. Um, but it's also the theme and can be a great, considered to be a great summary of all that Jesus came to do. There are many different passages in the New Testament that describe the purpose for which the Son of God came into the world. One of my favorite is 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God came in order to destroy the works of the devil, which is another way to say to set free those who were held captive by him. He is our deliverer, our rescuer, our savior. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Amen. Let's pray.